0: Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Neurology and Psychiatry podcast series, A Bold Panoramic Grasp of Tardive Dyskinesia. Today's episode features expert faculty, Drs. Jonathan Meyer, Leslie Citrome, and Stuart Isaacson, answering your questions about managing patients with tardive dyskinesia. These questions were submitted at recent conferences and are moderated by Drs. Charles D. Batista, Rajesh Pawa, and Greg Mattingly. For more information about these speakers and Tardive Dyskinesia educational activities, please visit the show notes. We'll begin with questions about diagnosis and pathophysiology and then move into management strategies and pharmacotherapy.
1: In consideration of performing AIMS, what is the best way to assess during a video health telehealth visit? Is there a modified approach that you recommend?
2: Well, if you can see me on the screen, uh, much as one might do in a video, you can see that you can see my upper uh, eyes and then eyebrows. You can see my eyes blinking. You can see my mouth moving. Uh, you can have my hands held up and see if I see any piano playing in the hand. You can see my shoulders and my trunk. So you could actually do six of the seven items on the Ames observation actually better on Zoom than in person, perhaps, because they'll fill the whole screen. And you can really look for these movements. But again, you have to tell the patient, before we get going, I just want you to look at the camera. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to hold your hands up. I want you to open and close your hands. You may want to back up. You can go and try to look at their legs as well and adjust the camera. But even without, just like this, you can really very well evaluate this. Uh, So I think uh, the virtual Zooms have really been helpful. Even if you don't have a picture and you're just listening on the phone, you might hear breathing changes You might hear movement of the phone, you might hear some slurring of speech and you might then query patients or ask a family or caregivers to see if they see any extra movements as well.
1: And and, you know, you earlier said something about If we stress the patient, these movements come on. And usually during telehealth visits, the patient is uh, often uh, trying to figure out uh, how the Zoom starts or whatever the telehealth might be. And that itself would precipitate some of these movements. Is there any imaging or lab work you start off with a part of your
2: evaluation? Not routinely, not routinely. Um, So if a patient is on an antipsychotic, recognize that these movements can occur and look for them, much like you'd weigh a patient uh, if if you're prescribing antipsychotic. Uh, that's number one. If you see something, then try to assess the impact um, on a patient's uh, daily activities and lives in, in those three different realms of physical, psychological, and social.
3: How does presynaptic dopamine depletion really do its thing? So again, the problem with TD is on the postsynaptic side. We have all these upregulated, super sensitive receptors. Every time dopamine hits, we get this exaggerated signal, which is what the dyskinesia is. So if we can have less dopamine released, then the postsynaptic signal will be that much less. That's all we're doing with the VMAT2 inhibitors is just lowering a little bit by blocking VMAT2 from sticking dopamine into those presynaptic vesicles. And we do it in a controlled manner. That's all we're doing. We're not changing what's happening on the postsynaptic side with all those upregulated, super-sensitive receptors. We're just lowering some of the presynaptic dopamine release.
1: Have you ever seen TD occurring earlier than three months? And how would you recommend treating withdrawal of That's a good question. So TD
2: movements on average, occur after these periods of time. And for diagnostic purposes, we pick these three months in elderly, but they can occur sooner. And indeed, we've seen patients and counted patients who report an exposure to antipsychotics just for two weeks and come in with tardive dyskinesia movements that they'd never had before. Um, so it can occur sooner. And we don't understand what genetic or other factors patients might have that might lead them to having a higher risk of developing it or, or developing it sooner. So so I think that patient might be especially prone for some reason we haven't understood yet. Withdrawal dyskinesias that occur upon stopping an antipsychotic self-resolve by definition. So if the movements go away within four to eight weeks, we might just wait time and watch them gradually go away rather than treating them. Uh, If they persist, then we would diagnose tardive dyskinesia and can think about the use of a VMAT-2 inhibitor.
3: Patients develops td and we lower the dose, and I'm assuming what they mean is they lower the dose of the antipsychotic, the TD might get worse at first. That's correct. So, there is a phenomenon called withdrawal dyskinesia. It's a funny name. Really, what happens is you'll have some people with TD, but you won't know about it because they're on their antipsychotic, and that antipsychotic is blocking enough of those dopamine receptors that were, that they're not getting... A lot of dopamine postsynaptically, and we don't see the tardive dyskinesia problem. But we have all these upregulated supersensitive receptors, they're just being blocked with the antipsychotic. We take away the antipsychotic, all of a sudden dopamine can get to all of those receptors, and we're like, ah, oh, I guess you had TD after all. So we call it withdrawal dyskinesia because in some people, it actually does go away. And the idea, though, if it's persisting now and it's getting to the point where it's been there for eight weeks, well, again, like, eh, it's probably not going away. We'll call it tardive dyskinesia. Well, what that means is that you might, if, if you see somebody who experiences withdrawal dyskinesia, just wait it out and see what happens. But I do want to say this. We do not use dose reduction of an antipsychotic as a way to treat tardive dyskinesia. That is incorrect. That is wrong. We do not do that. We may have people, let's say with a movement disorder, I'm sorry, with a mood disorder, you think, I'm not sure if you need that. And that's the kind of person where you say, okay, I'm going to give you the adjunctive atypical for your unipolar depression. And after, you know, six months, you're like, oh, I think I got TD and they call you up. Fine. Those are people in whom I'll stop the atypical because maybe if I'm lucky, it'll completely reverse. But if you have somebody with long-standing TD, and certainly if you have somebody with schizophrenia. Do not lower their antipsychotic dose. That is not a correct approach to managing tardive dyskinesia. Also, do not switch their medications. If somebody has TD and they're stable with their psychotropic. Do not switch it. It's not going to make their TD better. The only exception is some schizophrenia patients who go to clozapine who have moderate to severe TD. You'll see the TD get better. In this day and age, that is not how we treat TD, even in schizophrenia. Yes, going to Clozapine will make it better if people have moderate or severe TD. But to be honest, as much as I love Clozapine, I wrote a book on how to use it. If you call me up and said, I have a patient with TD, should I put them on Clozapine? I would say no, unless they have another reason to go to Clozapine meaning they have treatment-resistant schizophrenia, schizophrenia with polydipsia, schizophrenia with persistent aggression, schizophrenia with suicidality. Otherwise, just add the VMAT2 inhibitor to their existing regimen, and it'll be much easier and a more effective way to manage their tardive dyskinesia. So when starting somebody... On an atypical, how do you begin the discussion of them about the possibility of TD? So I'll say, look, these medicines modulate dopamine as one of their mechanisms. And sometimes we see movement disorders. I'll talk to them a little bit about Parkinsonism, and then I'll ask them. Have you seen the ads on TV about tardive dyskinesia? A lot of people have. They may not know what it is. If they say no, then you can explain. And you can explain the reason why you see ads on TV is we actually have treatments for that. But I think you have to acknowledge in some people it may not be reversible. And they need to hear those words. You don't want to scare the pants off of people. You want people to get treatment and I think you have to say, it's a very uncommon adverse effect. I'm going to monitor you. If you get any problem during treatment, you call me immediately. And some people it can be reversible upon drug cessation. And the idea is that they have to have heard the words because if they've heard the words, then really you've done your job as an educator, number one. And also certainly you've done your due diligence in terms of
4: informed consent. Many of my patients with mood disorders or treatment-resistant depression will decline a second generation antipsychotic due to tardive dyskinesia risk, Um, even though we're only talking about it maybe for short periods. This clinician, Darlene, she says, "Okay, experts in the field seem really comfortable recommending the use of second generation antipsychotics in these situations. But in the field, it's, it's pretty tough. A lot of our patients don't want to go there. What would your thoughts be there, Les? So
5: uh, I think it's quite reasonable to be wary of second generation antipsychotics. I want to make sure that the lowest dose possible uh, is used for the shortest period of time. uh, That's a legitimate concern. Uh, On the other hand, I need to treat the mood disorder and I may be forced into it. So it, it is, it's not an easy decision to make. And I think we need to be mindful when we use second generation antipsychotics, the risk is not zero. I'm looking forward to the future when we'll have uh, additional medicines that we can offer that do not block postsynaptic D2 receptors.
3: I've had a few instances of TD and people, young adults on the and Any insights? Yeah, it can happen. It's not common. I would say you probably run into a string of bad luck. But any atypical antipsychotic, any first-generation antipsychotic presents a risk for tardive dyskinesia if it blocks dopamine receptors. Even quetiapine, a drug which we think is a very weak D2 antagonist, has cases out there. Not a lot. Aripiprazole has cases out there. It can happen. And that's why you want to provide informed consent to everybody you're giving an atypical to.
1: Is lumatiparone less likely to cause TD? And as you know, this is a 5-HT2A, also has some dopamine. In clinical trials, the A's just did not make it as much of the extrapyramidal side effects. Right. So recognize
2: that antipsychotics are essential medicines to manage and improve mental health. But they block dopamine receptors. And if they block dopamine receptors, and they have enough occupants there to contribute to efficacy, they can cause tardive dyskinesia. And the best we can tell is about 1 in 14 people. The dones, the pips, uh, all of the antipsychotics commercially available block enough dopamine receptors with occupancy to lead to TD. So all these medications lead to DT. Why don't we see these in the uh, trials that lead to regulatory approval? Because the trials are short. They're short. And this is a late effect. So if the trial is six months or less, and tardive dyskinesia happens in patients after taking it for more than six months, we won't see tardive dyskinesia in the pivotal trials leading to regulatory approval. But later on in in clinical practice, it emerges. So whenever they're on any antipsychotic right now, and hopefully a new generation that don't block dopamine receptors at all, will reduce or or eliminate uh, tardive dyskinesia. But if they block dopamine receptors, tardive dyskinesia will emerge in some subset of
3: patients. Does physical therapy help tardive dyskinesia? It does not. It does not, unfortunately. Uh, We really have to treat this with VMAT-2 inhibitors, sometimes other things as well. There's people as part of their TD who have dystonic elements. Some instances, you will need to refer people to movement disorder neurologists, but PT is not the thing they're going to do for them. How do you take people who are historically on anticholinergics and get them on a VMAT-2? Well, if they're on the anticholinergic and they don't want to change right now and they have TD, you can just add the VMAT-2 inhibitor to the existing concoction of medications. Sadly, even in these pivotal trials of valbenazine and dutetrabenazine, a significant fraction remained on anticholinergics. We think it was the cognitive error on the part of the prior prescriber, but they didn't mess with it. And so you can add these onto the anticholinergics. And what I would say is maybe that's the easiest path forward initially. Over time, though, we want to get rid of anticholinergics because, one thing, they make TD worse, and number two, they're cognitively impairing. It's really no longer the standard of care to use anticholinergics for any human being, especially those with schizophrenia who already have a cognitive disorder. The typical off-titration would be a half milligram of benztropine every one to two weeks. Don't be in a hurry because if you're in a hurry getting rid of the anticholinergic, you're going to give them rebound symptoms and they're going to be unhappy. They'll have sleep disturbance at the bare minimum. So just be very slow in getting people off of the anticholinergic. Are there any drug interactions we should be mindful of with the VMAT-2 inhibitors. Yeah. So again, straight out of the package insert, for valbenazine, there's an interaction with strong 2D6 or 3A4 inhibitors. The idea is they have to be strong inhibitors. And if so, the max dose is 40. That's fine. Which means if you're adding a Vmat2 drug, um, valbenazine specifically, to somebody who's on valoxate.ine Your max dose is 40. That's it. Or do tetrabenazine. 2D6 is the issue, and if you're on a strong 2D6 inhibitor, your max dose is going to be 36. That's it. Is there any risk if you stop the Vmat2 drug? Will it be less effective if you restart it? The evidence is no, and and that's what I showed you. That uh, when you add it back, it seems to work just fine. And so you'll have rare patients where you may want to stop the VMAT-2 because they say, I'm better. I think I'm cured. You know it's probably not true. You say, fine. If you want to stop it, we'll stop it. And most likely their TD will come back, except in rare circumstances. And you'll say, you don't want to say, I told you, say, that's unfortunate. You just add it back again. I understand the long list of potential side effects, but real world, what are clinicians seeing? So do tetrabenazine, to be honest, because of its more gradual titration, the dropouts to adverse effects in a specific one are very, very low. I mean, very limited. We do see for valbenazine sedation, and that numerically was also the highest one in the clinical trials as well. And I think the idea is you do the standard titration, even for valbenazine. If people complain of sedation or some of those other adverse effects, you simply do dose reduction. I and mean, that's the way to manage that. What they're telling you is I'm very sensitive to the extent of VMAT2 inhibition I'm getting. And that's the manifestation, which is resulting in sedation. What percentage of patients do not respond to either drug? Well, this does happen, um, and we can go back to the slides and look, so it's gonna be maybe at least a quarter, depends on the particular drug and particular study. I would try the other drug and max it out. Uh, One thing I didn't mention, but I'll mention it now, is that because of how these drugs are metabolized, being on an inducer like carbamazepine or phenytoin may be lowering your efficacy. So go back and see if there's an inducer there which may be causing part of the problem. But assuming the person is not on an inducer, we sometimes see people who don't respond. They fail drug A and you've maxed it out. I would go to drug B and max it out. If they really don't get much from either of these and you're still sure they have TD, that's when you try to refer them to a movement disorder neurologist. Can two VMAT2 inhibitors be used at the same time? No, they are not. You do one or the other. We do not combine them. Like I say, if we run out of options, I've maxed out one or the other. That's where you send them to the movement disorder neurologists. I can tell you they may do off-label things, which you and I can't, such as going above the max dosing. And that's them. That's their specialty. They can do things that we're not able to, but we do not combine them. Why is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor uh, contraindicated? It actually is in both package inserts, by the way. And the reason being is that what we're trying to do is deplete those vesicles of dopamine. So what do monoamine inhibitors do? They actually raise the amount of dopamine in the cytosol. So you're maybe kind of working against yourself a little bit. That's why. It's not that they're going to have a bad adverse effect, but you're kind of working uh, against yourself on that. It's, it's a situation which almost nobody will run into. First question is
2: how available are these medications? Second, what about access? What about insurance coverage, uh, patient assistance programs? Do you know anything about, about those?
3: Yeah, so in terms of pharmacies, um, the only times I've ever heard of issues, you know, maybe the local pharmacy isn't stocking it. And sometimes on inpatient settings, maybe they don't stock it because typically we don't consider this an, an emergency. And so sometimes on inpatient pharmacies, they may not stock it. I think that's somewhat variable. I would say though, at least based in California, my experience with other states is many state Medicaid programs do cover the VMAT2 inhibitors. Occasionally they have unreal demands, and in some instances, which is just shocking, they want you to fail a trial an anticholinergic. Well, of course, that makes sense because you're making the disease worse. Very easy to fail a trial of a drug, which is going to make the problem <laughs> worse. And in terms of access for those who don't have insurance, if they have a Medicaid, often that will cover it. I know most of the companies, though, just speaking broadly, really do have patient assistance programs and try to find ways to get people drug. And I would just encourage you to to try to call the numbers that are available. They have websites, and often there are representatives who can kind of help you negotiate the systems to try to get your patients care because these are the most effective agents, and they're also F- the only ones which are FDA-approved. Can amantadine worsen tardive dyskinesia? So, No, I would say no. Uh,
5: amantadine uh, has been tested in tardive dyskinesia and showed a very modest effect. Uh, It does not worsen TD. So I view it as an alternative to anticholinergics and managing drug-induced Parkinsonism. I don't view it as an alternative to VMAT2
4: inhibitors because the effect size is too small. Okay. So we're not going to make it worse, but the effect size is much smaller for improving TD. How do you manage something with TD and Parkinsonism?
3: So the first thing with Parkinsonism is to look at, do they actually need all the D-tube blockade they're getting? Is it possible I can manage their Parkinsonism by dose reduction? If that's not possible, then which is the bigger problem? Is it the Parkinsonism or the TD? And that's the thing I attack first. We, in this day and age, really try not to give any human being anticholinergics because the cognitive impairment that's caused, especially any older individual, should never be on centrally acting anticholinergics. If somebody has Parkinsonism and TD and the Parkinsonism is the bigger problem, I'm going to use amantadine. It's not anticholinergic. It'll make their drug-induced Parkinsonism better. And it actually may help their TD a little bit. If the TD is the bigger problem, I will titrate up their VMAT2 inhibitor. If the Parkinsonism becomes a problem and I can't shave down the dose of the D2 antagonist, then adding a amantadine is going to be my solution. How does Benztropine make TD worse? Well, I'll, I'll explain to you. When people have Parkinsonism, from an ongoing dopamine blocker, we throw the certain neurons in the striatum out of balance. So there's normally a dopamine signal and an acetylcholine signal. If I block that dopamine signal, we have an excessive acetylcholine signal that's out of balance. That's Parkinsonism. How do we restore that balance? Well, one way is it giving an anticholinergic. So now we block both equally and the neurons in balance. In tardive dyskinesia, we have an excessive dopamine signal. Okay? So, in theory, although we don't do this, we would balance that out, although we don't, by giving a cholinergic agonist. And then we'd have excessive signals both ways, but they'd be in balance. So, if I have an excessive dopamine signal, and then I block the acetylcholine signal, I throw the the system even further out of whack. It's the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Anticholinergics only work for Parkinson's or dystonia. They don't work for akathisia, and they certainly don't work for tardive dyskinesia. Is there any research with VMAT2s
4: in
5: children? So VMAT2 inhibitors are not approved for use in children and adolescents. Uh, it has been used off-label as such. I have seen adolescents with tardive dyskinesia, so it's real. Uh, there's nothing that would suggest to me that you can't do it. Um, I, I think it still works in a younger population, but it's it's off label.
4: Yeah. And and I would echo that. I think one of the fastest growing groups that I see clinically less is kids that have developmental disabilities who have been exposed to antipsychotics maybe for 10 years by the time they're in their late teens. Um, So I think that's a group we have to keep our eye on. It's off-label, but I, I like you. I have used it for a few older adolescents.
0: Thank you all for listening. We hope you found this podcast informative for your clinical practice. For more information on this series and other educational activities, please visit the show notes. Thanks again and have a marvelous day.